0: God has a plan and a purpose. Wow, I just felt that from the Lord. Everything is as it should be. Sometimes, you know, you just go to the Lord. You're asking him, you know, things here, things there in my life. Lord, you can rearrange and you can move things around. And the Lord is with us. He knows what's going on. I happen to watch a video from... uh, like wintertime of 2020 when some of the news was over the, overseas. It wasn't here in the U.S. yet. And the worship leader's like, you know, uh, God's not worried about 2020. He knows what's going to happen. What's funny is they said it with such faith then, right? They didn't, they didn't know what they were going to see the next couple of years. Um, but, you know, we can't go back and be like, oh, well, you were off and you were wrong, you know, when you said that just because it looked harsh to us and it was a hard two years and a lot of loss of life and, and all kinds of other chaos with it, right? We have to say, you know what? Uh, the world goes through mountain peak times and they go through valley times, right? We've been through wars. We've been through uh, crises that have touched the world from outside this world, right? Meteors and asteroids have hit the earth, tornadoes, tsunamis. I mean, good times and bad times. God is God over all of it. And there is always an opportunity for a miracle in all of it. I'm just reminded now that there was, uh, during the tsunami that happened in 2004, there was a preacher that the Lord had called to go and to, and you guys may know the story because they kind of aired it on uh, 700 Club and things like that. Um, This man was just taking care of these uh, young orphans and... And he's serving God, and you think, okay, Lord, I'm here, and I'm doing your will. And then there's a tsunami coming suddenly, and he's right in the heart of it. And uh, the, he, it's a, quite a miracle, but just very quickly, he's able to get everybody, as the water receded, and some people are just walking out, you know, you can watch the videos just to, like, stare at the ocean. I don't know what you're thinking, but uh, he was able to get everybody into boats and then the, here comes the wave, and it was coming very quickly and very powerfully, and he prayed and he said, the Lord will raise up a standard against you. And at that moment, their boats just cut right, the waves cut through, the boat cut through, and they were all safe. And the thing is that, uh, and I, I kind of posed the question last week, we can ask the question to God, God, why did you allow the tsunami? But out of the same side of our mouth, we can say to God, Uh, God, thank you that even though tsunamis come, you were there with us, and you took us through it. So we can look at every single situation with a question why, or we can look at it as God is still faithful and there with us in every single one of those circumstances. Amen. And so with that, I want to get into what I have for today, and it's, I just felt like I had uh, a word from the Lord, and it's at just the right time. Everybody say, at just the right time. And I asked another question, just kind of asking within myself, is God really on time all the time? Who's ever heard the phrase, God is on time all the time, right? I asked the question, is he really on time all the time? And the answer is, of course, yes, but the question is, Is interesting to think about because how many times in your life did you feel like God was late, or he he missed what was somehow he missed like God? Are you not seeing what's going on in my situation here? I told you the deadline was yesterday, but God's not late. God has a plan, doesn't He? And I just wanted to read some things. Firstly, it says in Psalms uh, 31, verse 15. Uh, in the New King James, it says, My times, and this is a favorite for mine, of, of mine, I know, of some of you as well. This is one of my life mottos. When things in your life are not going the way you planned, even on a daily basis when, you know, you, you made the wrong turn, I mean, even physically, you know, you missed a turn, and it's going to cost you time in your life. Sometimes I'll even just thank God right then and there and say, You know what? I don't know what was on that other road. You know, I'm not going to over-spiritualize it, but I'm not going to under-spiritualize it either. And I just say, my times are in your hand. Things don't go your way. There's a cost of time and money or whatever it is. And, you know, you just feel the burden of the cost of like, well, this is going to cost me something, you know. And I just say, Lord, my times are in your hand. And so uh, this theme, you can actually follow it. It's all through the word about the times being in his hands, in the book of Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4, verse 3 says, And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But, everybody say but, when the right time came. I love this. I love that verse because it's the Bible says that, you know, we were, we were subject to this world and we were in sin, right? That's each of us really individually, even if you were raised in it, if you were taught it as a young person, you know, you're finding, you know, Christ yourself personally. So we're all going through this journey, but obviously this verse is implying that pre-Christ and post-Christ. And the point is that they may have said, well, you know, Jesus, uh, the Messiah, it's been a you know thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years now. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I just don't see it happening in a person. Maybe it's something else, right? They came up with theories, and then Jesus is standing in front of them, and they miss him because he had become so, you know, so ab- abstract in their thinking. He's like, you're searching the scriptures, trying to find me, and I'm standing right in front of you, and. The Bible says in Peter that that's the same exact thing that will happen again as a sign of his coming again. That they'll say, oh, yeah, we've heard that before. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Okay, let's move on to some other things. You know, we need to, like, deal with things in our time right now. We don't have, we don't really need to focus on his coming, you know, if, when it happens, if it happens. I mean, that's the type of talk that you end up hearing among some Christians I've literally heard people say, yeah, 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 we've heard, like, literally what the Scripture says. I've heard that my whole life. He, Jesus is coming back. Um, and the Bible says, though, in Galatians, that God said that when Jesus came, it was the right time that God sent his Son. And when Jesus comes again, and he is coming again, amen, And we are not of those that are going to be, we're not going to fulfill the Peter prophecy. That's not us. We can let other people do that. We're going to be the ones that are going to be telling them, Jesus is coming. Be ready, be ready, be ready, right? Because that's what the Bible tells us. That's what Paul, a healthy Christian following in the footsteps of Christ, that's what he said. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That's what they all talked like. And so my word says that when he comes again, it'll be at the right time just as when he came the first time was the right time. God is not late. He's on time because it's his time. And the Bible says that God sent him, verse 5, to buy our freedom, uh, buy the freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. The King James Version interprets verse 4 as when the fullness of the time had come. And I think that's important because... In other words, what God was saying is not just the right time, but there was a fulfillment. Now, if you're reading the Old Testament with us as a church, you may have noticed something that comes up from time to time, and that is this. God will talk about a foreign nation surrounding Israel, and either someone is proposing to go to war with them, or they're coming to war against them, and God says something very interesting. In other words, Uh, 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 he'll say something like either um, don't go to war with them or when they come to war with you, God diffuses it. And what he says is, he says their time has not come or their time of sin, there's some, you know, he says something different for each of them. But the point is that there is a time that he's allowing, there's a grace that he's allowing for these nations and it hasn't come yet. And then there's times where he says it has reached its its point. I'm going to deal with Moab today. They've reached the point where I had. Obviously, God is some sort of designated place in time, and in between that is called grace, right? In Peter, it says the same in the same analogy that we're talking about Jesus coming again, and people would say, scoff and say, yeah, he's not coming again or whatever. The same Peter also said that... Uh, that Jesus, that could or might or might not come, or whatever you know, whatever their scoffing is, is that same Jesus is uh, is late, and that he is um, uh, that he has missed them, and and Peter's basically getting into this thing where he says uh, he says to them, he says, it's not God being late, it's God having grace. You think it's God being late, and you're coming up with all these scenarios of why, and, and that he's not looking or whatever. I know I'm adding to it, but I'm just thinking of him having a conversation with these people. But he's not late. Thank God he's being late in your perspective, because, because of his lateness, grace was extended towards us. Imagine God had decided to come in our time, right, while you were still in sin imagine it was before we were born i don't know what that means because that's outside of our understanding our reality of you know life and death and heaven and earth but i'm thankful that jesus waited till now at least to come because i came to know him amen so sometimes when we think we've got it all figured out god is looking and saying it is all according to my time and in the fullness of time certain things will come to pass we need to know and I love that verse from the song we played last that give me the faith that I'll have tomorrow because I have a certain amount of faith today but when it's fulfilled we have a lot of faith don't we right we can hope for something to happen but once it happens we have a total different demeanor and understanding Lord I want tomorrow's faith today I want to be just as as it as a knowing as excited about what you're going to do for me uh, right here before you've done it amen So he says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, it says, When Jesus came and he met the demons of the Gadarene, the Gadarene men or men, um, uh, Matthew interprets it as men, but we also know it, it, I think it's in Mark, as the the man. But regardless, what he's not really dealing with here is the demons here. And he says in verse 29, They began screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? Even the demons know that God has times. Everybody say, God has times. So that means that there is a time that He allows you in sin, even though He doesn't. That does not mean, see, some people think they're getting away with it. It's not God approving of it. It's that God is extending grace. Hopefully, like when a parent gives their children lots of stuff and lots of room, and when they turn a blind eye to seeing things their kids are doing, you think, imagine if a parent spanked, or you can't say spanked. What am I talking about? I mean, told their kid to go to the corner. I don't know every time they did something wrong that kid would be blind because he'd never get any light he'd always be in the corner so obviously you can't deal with a child every single time so when you're turning a blind eye it's not that you're unaware it's called grace so there's an appointed time though and in my kids experienced it. i remember with my father the same thing there was a moment where justice was served and then the child says to something like this to the father. What did I do? Just tell me what I did. And I remember even my father's same thing, like confused by the question. And I realize now, being an older man myself, having you know kids that are older, saying, it would take me too long to explain what you did. You think... I'm overreacting to this minor issue, but I'm really dealing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of infractions, but it seems sudden and, and final now, but really I've given you grace all this time. And the point is that even the demons, we don't understand this. We want, like, God deal with the devil, deal with the demons. Like, the Lord has even an appointed time for them. Talk about a God that we just don't understand. But I want to give you some comfort in this. We know, because we can see the end of the story. My Bible says in Revelation that these demons that appeared to have more freedom than I would allow them to have, right? They request, can we go into the pigs? Jesus grants it. And they go down into the river and drown. But my Bible says that one day, everybody say one day. I If you don't get excited just by saying those words, he said that death and hell, the devil, his fallen angels, the demons, all of it gets thrown into the lake of fire. And that's really the way we're supposed to live as Christians. We're not supposed to live focused in our time or on particular circumstances that we're living in. We're supposed to look at God with appointed times. We're supposed to look at Him as if we've already completed the task of living this life to the fullness. We're seated with Christ in eternity already. That's what my word says. In the book of Romans chapter 5, it says in verse 1, "...Therefore, Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. So, first of all, what Romans says here in chapter 5, it has been done by God. I want you just to get that. It's going to be a main theme of what I'm going to get into here in the next few minutes. God did it, but I applied my faith. Do we understand that concept as Christians, right? It's God's gift— My response is my faith, right? Nothing. You cannot get anything from God without faith. Salvation was not forced on anyone, not no one. Every single one of us here was offered salvation, and we all accepted it. If you have not, and this is a small church, so I know you, but I'm going to say it formally anyway. If you have not done that, then we need to have a discussion after the service, and maybe you on the podcast, you can contact us. That is what salvation is. It's God did it. I apply my acceptance. That's my faith. Verse 2 mirrors that again in a little bit fuller. It says, because of our faith, so he says it again. And now when the word repeats itself, what's it doing? Trying to make the point here. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege, where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So he says it again connecting together, that it's our faith, but Christ did it. It's not deserved. Everybody say it's not deserved. It's not deserved. And yet it required my faith. So, and I want you to say it out loud, and yet it required my faith. So God did something supernatural. I joined in with His plan. Amen. Verse three. So we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know they help us t- to develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation so what he's saying is is that god has done it and i said it to you twice god did it so when you get into stuff life brings things that you didn't expect or hits you from the left or the right and pushes you what seems like off track, I need you to know today that there's something supernatural that's happening in that process. There's a a developing that's happening. But I want you to cleave to the confident hope of salvation before this journey even began. Because it was God who did it, and it was undeserved, and you've already joined with it. Don't quit now. Hold on. So it says in verse 5 to encourage us, and this hope, you may know it as will not disappoint. It says here, this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. In verse 6, what I want to get to here as the conclusion of Romans 5 for me is when we were utterly helpless. Here it is again. Christ came, and I want you to read this not just as that he came into the earth as Jesus the Christ, but also in every single situation that you go through when he came to get you personally saved, not just that he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, I see it as when Christ, when you got saved, Christ came from heaven to your heart. Do you realize that it's not just a story that touched your heart in some emotional way? I had uh, someone tell me one time that, They used to listen to the Rolling Stones. They would turn all the lights off. They would go into their parents' attic and they would listen to the Rolling Stones album and just cry and feel emotional. And, you know, the world can give you an emotional experience. Music can give you an emotional experience. Church-y type of environments can give you an emotional experience. That's not... Salvation, that was not your meeting with Christ. You have to realize Christ literally came and joined His Spirit with your spirit. There may have been some cries and some goosebumps and some emotional things, but that was only an outside picture of what was happening on a much deeper level internally, and it was that Christ literally gave His life, yes, on the cross, but He gave His life to actually live through your life, and so it should give us, when we talk about a confident hope of salvation, it's not just a line, oh yeah, one day I'm going to go to heaven. You need to know that Christ is with you, living inside you. That's what happened, and that he came at just the right time, and if he came at just the right time and died for us, why wouldn't he come at just the right time in your situation today? When we really get this concept that he was right on time, then anything you go through, you can have an equal confidence that if Christ was on time then, why would he be late now? It's been said before, and I've preached it before. God hasn't failed me so far. Why would he abandon me today? Amen. Last week, we looked at how Jesus was the fourth man in the fire, right? We looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Jesus showed up. I was just thinking, and I was laughing to myself writing these words, because I thought, man, Jesus showed up at just the right time in that situation, but if I was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I might have a different opinion on just the right time, all right? I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but, right, we know what happened. They get thrown in the fire. They said, we're not going to deny Christ even if you put us in there. And even if we die, we know our lives are greater than death, is what they were really saying, that Christ, he'll save us. You don't even understand what that means. Uh, You know, whoever that is that's trying to curse you and, and reject you, you know that you have a relationship with God above this world and above any kingdom, even a great kingdom like Babylon. So I was just thinking how if I really, really want to believe that God is not a moment late and not a moment too soon, I just pictured them standing there and wondering, like, okay, I know we said, I know I said it, that I'm not going to deny you, and I'm not going to deny you, but any moment now, because they just put ropes on my hands and my feet, and I just saw them stoke the fire. Okay, we're walking towards it. All right, we're going in. And then suddenly there is Christ in the fire with them. You have to realize that uh, Christ within us, he, if you think of your life, what is happening, see, there's a, the outside world and there's an internal world, right? And what's happening inside you is you're dealing with things, you're processing this life, you're processing what's going on around you, and you're making decisions to either trust God or reject God. It's literally on a moment-by-moment basis, right? So God allows stuff around you that we don't like, hot fires, rejection, cursing, uh, theft, I mean, hard stuff. But in that place, and we think, God, why did you allow it to happen? I've looked at it this way. The seatbelt, Lord, you used the seatbelt to save my life. Because that actually happened to me more than once. And I knew it was God. But I could ask the question, God, why didn't you save, why didn't you just have me not hit that telephone pole? That seems like an easier miracle than having to save me when I did hit the pole and my car is rolling through the air and landing on the ground and sounds like I threw a boulder into a dumpster. I walked out with only a mark of the seatbelt on my neck. I mean, I look at that car. I remember going and visiting at the scrapyard. I mean, they literally junked it. I'm talking junked that car. And it was just a simple mistake. I just veered into a pole. I went to go reach for something, and the pole was, you know, one of those ones that's right on the line. It's not like I went off five feet. It It had been hit before, the homeowner told me. It was not the first time. But you could say, God, why did you allow it to happen? Why wouldn't you just have me not look down at that moment? Why didn't, you know, all these whys. And the thing is that we need to come to the place that if we truly trust that Christ is with us, I have to look and say, you know, I could ask a million whys, but instead I'm thankful that I didn't want to go into the fire, but there we are. And you were there with us. Amen. So, um, I wanted to just take us for the next few minutes into a, a story that was on my heart recently because I was driving and I was just thinking some, some deep thoughts as I do because I guess just maybe because of being a preacher or maybe it's just who I am, but I'm always just thinking and in deep thought and I'm just thinking how, and I'll, I'll talk on this maybe in a few more minutes, but communism tries to actually mimic God. They try to be a human version of what God does. See, because they say it's not fair, we want to create equality for everyone, and, and no matter what you do, everybody's equal. And it's like, wow, those are some God concepts, but it doesn't work. You know why? Because human nature is involved. Only God can truly manage a system like that. It does not work. It will never work. They're going to keep trying it. They're trying it here in this nation now. It hasn't happened yet. We're on a fast track towards it. And I was just thinking how the Lord has given us all gifts and all abilities and how we're all different levels and and we're all different people. And as I want to just read here, I want to talk about Esther just for a couple more minutes and how you didn't choose to be born. First of all, anybody in here choose to be born? No. And when you were born, you didn't choose to be a beauty queen like Esther You didn't choose to be Einstein, right? You didn't choose to be what the world says is not beautiful and not smart, even though that's not God. That's what the world says. You didn't make those choices. You didn't choose to be born a quadriplegic. There's a lot beyond us that is beyond even any choices that we ever even made. Which means we could look, yes, there is a curse. God never wanted anybody to be born a quadriplegic. I'm not saying God was like, oh, this is going to be fun to watch this person suffer, all right? I mean, that's, obviously that's horrible. That's not God. But God is greater, amen. Well, let's just acknowledge it. And whoever saw, I grew up, there was a man, I don't know his name. He was born with no arms. And you would think, man, what am I going to do with no arms? It's like you can't do anything, literally no arms. He could walk, but I mean, you can't do anything. You'd be grabbing your cup with your mouth, I mean, to have a drink. Anything you do would be very, very awkward, or you need someone to help. You know what he did? He learned to play the guitar with his feet, and his very first song, his very first hit was, Thank You, Lord, something like that. I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you. It's not the way that most humans would think, would it be? And so I just was just thinking how, and communism says, you know, we'll just kill that person because they're not valid for this society. They're not gonna bring, you know, and that's kind of what Hitler was trying to do, this perfect race, this perfect people. So any abnormalities, anything that he didn't that they deemed was not the right color, the not the right race, not the right height, et cetera. They just let's just kill them all and we'll just create our own little perfect people trying to create some sort of fake obviously devil inspired on earth heaven that's literally what they were trying to do over there in germany and i was just thinking god you are so great you are so beyond you are so big meanwhile while well, the earth is judging all these things and trying to create and trying to push us all to be like each other and this is what success looks like and this is what the person who has achieved looks like, and these are the right races, and so on. God, in a heavenly picture, you don't look at any of those things. All you look at is a heart that either chooses to love you, chooses to reject you, and if it chooses to love you, there is a plan and a purpose for that person, period. And so I just wanted to just get into this for just a couple minutes. You can turn with me. Into the book of Esther. I'm going to start in chapter 2, so just a quick, very, very quick preview here. Somewhere around 480 BC, everybody remembers Xerxes, right? He becomes the, they come in, they they conquer Babylon. Israel had rebelled against God. Remember our church history? Israel rebelled against God, so God allows Babylon to come and take Israel into Babylon. Well, then the Persian empire subdues the Babylonian empire, right? Church history. And then, Xerxes is the king. Well, what happens is Xerxes has a, uh, a queen. Her name is Vashti, and he's going to put on a beauty show of sorts and show her off. She says no. Everybody remember? I'm just making sure everybody's on. I think everybody in here is. She says no, so he says, okay, what do I do? uh, All the nobles say, well, you know, she can't be the queen, because this is especially the culture back then. You're talking a Middle Eastern culture. I mean, women, you just don't refuse. The man is not going to work. You need to get rid of her. And uh, you could get into all kinds of depths of actually God actually has a lot of lessons in here, what's kind of going on in there. But We're not going to get into that today. And the point is that she can't be the queen. We need to find a new queen for you. All right, so we're going to jump into chapter 2, and I'm going to kind of breeze through some verses here. And it says in Esther chapter 2, verse 2, So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Verse 3 says there was a man named Haggai, and he was the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, and he will see that they're all given beauty treatments, verse 4. And after that, the young women... Who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. And this advice was uh, appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Verse 5. I just want to point out before we get ahead, Vashti made the choice to rebel against King Xerxes on her own. Okay? Number two, the nobles came up with this plan, not the Jews. Number three, the king says... I agree. Puts a seal of approval and puts this thing into effect. So this is a this is an earthly, human, even we could even call it because it's in the Persian Empire. Dem- we're talking. We're talking literally. We don't know it. We don't understand it all, but we know that Michael was battling with the spirit prince of Persia. I don't understand it all, but there are demonic kingdoms even to this day that are ruling in the earth. God has got over it. We already read it. The demons have a season that they appear to have freedom and to rule. God will deal with it in the appointed time. We're not going to go into that again, but we all get that, right? So we're talking even even a demonically inspired plan, a kingdom that is demonically built and inspired, all right? That's what it would look like and appear to be. It says, Though, as we move on into the story, verse 6, actually, verse 5, there was a man named Mordecai in verse 6. Mordecai's family had been among those who had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And as a result of the king's decree, verse 8, many women were sought around the kingdom, and Esther was among them. She was brought to the king's harem, and she was placed in Haggai's care. Verse 9, Haggai was very impressed with Esther, and he treated her kindly. And I just began to think here, what do you think that he was like, man, she's just more beautiful than all the other women? It's possible that she was, uh, or was it something else? The Bible says here that he was impressed with her and he treated her kindly, and something about her caught his attention. Now he's just serving in the king, he's just doing what the king's asking him to do. He's just a cog in a, in a big system, right, of wheels working together to, to, for this kingdom. But something about her caught his attention and she was singled out and he put special favor upon her. It says, Haggai quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now, I don't know who this hey guy is or where he thinks he got all his authority, but it sounds like hey guy is more acting like a king here. He's deciding for the king, apparently, this is the girl. The king is going to be the one that's going to make the choice, but somehow hey guy's like, no, this is the one, before it even happens. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 10... Esther had not told anyone her nationality and family background because Mordecai had, had directed her not to do so. In verse 12, uh, it says, Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatment, six months of oil and myrrh, six months of special perfumes and ointments. And when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived, and there she would be under the care of another guy, the king's eunuchs, in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Now, Verse 15 gives us a little inside information to what happened in verse 13. Verse 13 says, when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take. But it says in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of Haram. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. Verse 16, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women, and he was so delighted, this is verse 17, that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. Now, Disney ripped off the Bible. This is every princess story talking the classic Cinderella story here, you're talking some nobody, you know, she's literally uh, another nation that was subdued by another nation under them, and some girl was taken in, and suddenly she is the queen of one of the greatest empires of all time. They literally had 127 provinces. If you look at the map, it's like, I mean, it is way, way over towards Asia. It's up towards Russia. This is things down into Africa. This was a massive empire. And here's a Jew in a Persian kingdom who is now queen. Wow. So Disney can give some, uh, is going to have to stop knocking the Bible so much and Christians so much because they ripped off God. It says in chapter 3, That sometime later, everybody say, sometime later. Don't you love the Bible? Yep, that's how it goes. Esther is like, she's just living the life. She's like, wow, you know, that was like, that was some journey. And uh, I can't believe I'm here. And then the Bible's like, oh, wait, 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 that's not the story. That was just the intro. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted a man named Haman. And I'm going to go really fast here over all the nobles making him the most powerful official in the empire. Verse two, and all the king's officials would bow down to him, but Mordecai would not. Verse six, he had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So Haman's like, who is that Mordecai? I want to know who he is. He finds out that he's a Jew. So he goes to Xerxes, and he's like, I I don't want just him killed, I want his whole nationality killed. Verse 13, and they sent out this dispatch, and they said it's going to be on March 7th of next year, and everybody that gets killed, if you kill them, you can even take their land. So chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and he went into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. And verse 5 says that Esther finds out that Mordecai is down there weeping. She says, what's going on? And they tell her, what's going on, and Mordecai says to her in uh, verse 8, to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. Now Esther, at this point, even if this happens, nobody even knows that she's a Jew, and most likely no one would have ever found out that she was a Jew, and her whole people could have been killed, and she could have remained queen. Nobody knew. The only person that knew was Mordecai. And he told her, don't tell anyone. And she wouldn't probably have been made queen if they did know. And now here she is, queen. And he says to her, he says, go and beg for mercy. But she says, verse 10, tell Mordecai this, verse 11. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know, everyone knows you don't be you don't just come before the king. We're talking this is the king. We'll call him little G like I mean he's little G God of this world. I mean he's the king of kings. This is a king literally of kings. 127 kings under him. You don't just go and appear before him without being invited. Otherwise unless he holds out his gold scepter you die. And he hasn't called for me in like 30 days. So he so The message comes back to Esther from Mordecai, verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this. Everybody say a time like this. Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. In other words, Mordecai knew that God is so faithful. God is in control of the seasons and the times, and God allowed us to come here. We could go back and get really mad at all the kings and all the idols and tell the prophets they should have preached harder and should have preached louder Or we can accept the reality that here's where we are. And he also said to Jeremiah that if you pray for the peace of this city, that was where they were in Babylon, then there will be peace. That God, even though we're here and we're in Babylon, he's going to watch over us. But at this moment, if you don't join with his plan, God's plan will still happen. But you have an opportunity here. He said, if you don't do it, you and your relatives will die who knows if perhaps and we have a plaque of this right in our downstairs in our main floor bathroom here uh it just says this it says for such a time who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this then esther sent this reply to mordecai go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my maids will do the same. And if I die, then I die. And we know the story. She goes in, the king does give her favor. Not only are they granted to be able to defend themselves against anybody who came against them, but Haman, right, who created this whole plot, he's uh, personally, impaled by the king. And the story, uh, you know, uh, the rest of it is is history as our book of Esther that we know and we love and we say, wow, Lord, you were with them and you took care of them and you blessed them and he takes Mordecai and brings them up and all these amazing things where we can say, wow, God. And meanwhile, I'm reading this and I'm looking at the story and I'm like, wow, there's so many things. Esther... Did not choose to be born beautiful. That means that you took somebody who was born and you placed her and then you gave favor to her without her doing. You somehow t- convinced this guy, Haggai, that he was in charge and moved her through the system. She could have been patting herself on the back right brushing off her shoulders as the queen and i'm just so beautiful and meanwhile we can see another side of her that she wasn't ju- she didn't just have beauty but she had incredible wisdom and i saw how the lord gives us gifts and ability and then we give him our faith that she just because she was pretty and the king might pick this one there was some things that God needed to happen, and God takes this woman and places her in a position where he knew that she had an opportunity to speak into this pagan king's life. And the Bible says that when it came time, Mordecai says to her, you can keep quiet, but maybe, just maybe, all the way back then when Vashti was rebellious against her king, maybe, I know this starts to get crazy. We saw, I said about asking whys, but let's just ask a couple of quick whys before we close here. Maybe God inspired her to do that because he saw Haman's plan before Haman devised this plan. And he said, I can get somebody, this king thinks that he's ruling this kingdom, but I can place anybody I want right in, literally, and make him bow. (laughs) I mean, when he put his scepter, he said, you can have anything up to half my kingdom. Essentially, he bowed to her. I can do whatever I want, even with pagan kingdom, and I can make it bow to nobody Jews over here and make them the hero of the story. I can take the king of 127 provinces and I'll make him bow to these people. And the Bible says that she recognized the moment she began to fast and pray and went in and did what needed to be done even if it cost her her life. And I just saw this. Every single one of us it doesn't matter if you've been given outside beauty or inner beauty, if you've been given apparent and obvious gifts and abilities or internal ones, every single person on the earth has been given this same story. Esther just gets all the, the glory here in the story, and we're going to I do praise her, not in a God way, but I thank her for what she did for her people and to serve God. But Mordecai. Is, is also here. There's more to his story. We just don't have time in a Sunday sermon to get into him, right? But he stood in the gap. There's a lot of that's going on here that I think that we could apply to every single life on earth following God. God is, is placing you much more than you realize in your situation, And then suddenly when the pressure comes, you could say, well, this is not my problem. God gave me beauty and made me queen. Not realizing that the only reason you are in the position you are with whatever that is was never for you, but you get to enjoy all the benefits of it, but it was never for you to begin with, that everything that God's been doing through this whole process and journey is to place you in a place where he could use you to save someone else. And I just said, wow, God. Wow. Wow. See, the world goes, oh man, I wish I could be as beautiful as Esther. And the Lord's like, you don't need to focus on, on her external beauty. You need to see that that could have been wiped off the face of the earth in a second, that that was a tool. Meanwhile, he's given you the incredible ability to raise up children. You don't even know. You might be raising up an evangelist that's going to touch half of Africa. I mean, you don't even know who you are and what your gifts and abilities are. You think it's all this and that, and, and you're being placed here, and it seems random. And she could have been bitter that she was ripped from her, from her father, Mordecai, right? Adopted father and from her people, and now she's forced to be some queen to some guy. Now you look at the story that way too, right? And the point is that the Lord is is actually much more involved in our stories. It's not just that, okay, Lord, I want to get saved. I made a big mess of my life, and now I get saved, and I'm going to go to heaven one day. The Lord's like, you don't even realize that I've been with you since the day you were born, and even when you were a sinner. That's what my word says, that Christ, while we were sinners, he was already working and doing, and it was a part of our story. doesn't mean he liked it didn't approve of your sin, but it was a part to get you to this place. The Lord met you, and then we go together into the plan and purposes that he has for you. Amen. Wow. We just thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that this sermon is life to our bodies. It's life to our spirits. I pray, God, you would give us, Lord, like I pray every week, Lord, that this would be good seed, in good ground in our hearts, Lord, that it would grow and produce life in us. In Jesus' name, amen.